Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a live killer urban gorilla. I gotta be a roughneck. Free the Black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for Free the Black Panthers. It's up the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, up coin tail pro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black on black power moves. You tell a lie, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Ha. We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns that's worth the crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday. I fuck me promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. If up the Black Police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. If up the Black Police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, up coin tail pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black woman and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no, no other Black Panther Party, we're not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. And the most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police departments to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous servant unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation. Individuals whose families have... Yes, but, 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 yes, but we, yes, 
versus uh, individuals whose families are more recent immigrants to the United States. So, but I, but what I'm saying is, 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 is we have research that has been done that documents <laughs> that today there is this gap that is rooted in those red lines. That it shows up in the data of today. Now, we we could be told by the task force, we don't, we don't care about that. We only want the more narrow. Show me that you were here in California in 1940 when the redlining went into effect and document that you were here. And then we, I mean, we, we could do, we can do it that narrow too if that's what you Yeah, want. that would be possible. That's what wants us to do. It's simply say, come up with a map that identifies people who were here in 1940. Though, remember the population of black people in California in 1940 is significantly smaller than the current black population in California. Significantly smaller because the bulk of the people in California who are black came with the World War II ammunitions buildup in the war industry. I have a quick question that I uh, that I just uh, for clarification that I um, uh, would like to ask. Would it be possible to calculate the um, wealth gap stemming from housing discrimination in 1965 rather than today um, to get an estimate that um, that excludes recent immigration? Uh, uh, that's really possible. Possible. Certainly, yeah. Sure. yeah, that could be done. I'm, I think that I'm snapshot in time sure. does, um, Thomas. I think it does. Mm -hmm. I think that snapshot in time with the 1965 date does. Um, yeah. a, a lot of the inputs and framework with time periods as determined by the task force will in fact kind of allow for an intrinsic disaggregation. Uh, is it once we're given those time periods and and we already know what the the vote said yesterday i think even with these kind of um salient dates we will kind of have intrinsic lineage based um calculations that will be produced for for these atrocities so i don't think it's a matter of we calculate and then we need to disaggregate the population again. I think the inputs with the time period would allow for some of what we need to see in terms of the disaggregation. No, but, but before I would agree with that, I, I have to be clear on what, it, what is Thomas's point. Are you saying you want to compensate people who were in California in 1960 on the basis of what was housing discrimination in 1960? Or are you saying, I want to use discrimination in housing patterns as of 1960 to project forward what is the lasting impact of that? And what I was saying to you before is that depends. Because the lasting impact, what is the, re what is the residue, is I would take black people today and look at that housing pattern and look at their homeownership pattern, and I would try to trace back this correlation to what we know happened then. So my initial thing is that we already know that redlining, the red lines that were drawn back by FHA at the origin, this is before there was mass immigration of black people from somewhere else, has lasting impacts on black 
home ownership and black housing patterns, black residential segregation today. If, but if you disaggregate, right, you're asking me calculate an amount. What do I get compensated for that? What is my compensated compensation? What is the value of the harm done to me? If I then disaggregate, I would be saying, okay, I'm going to take black people who are descendants of slaves, I'm going to give you an estimate based on that, but that's compared to, that's compared to what? Compared to what everybody happened for everybody else. But the everybody else in that comparison is going to include some people who may have also been discriminated against because they were black. So I'm going to dilute. I'm going to give you a smaller estimate of the harm done to the descendants of slaves. I, I don't quite understand why it's everybody else. Why not compare to whites? Because um, these policies benefited whites. It was defined in the policy that they could only get government-insured mortgages if they lived in white-only neighborhoods with with restrictive covenants. So it should be compared descendants of uh, African-American descendants of the enslaved compared to uh, white Americans or white Californians. Yeah, and and as an uh, adjunct to that comment, I, I believe you were proposing that the cost of uh, discrimination in housing be measured in 1965, but then once that calculation is made, we could compound it to the present. Compound it to the present, right? That, exactly. would, that would dictate what the amount of compensation should be for people who are presently living in California. Yes, that's that's what the idea was. Uh, that that would still be tricky, but but the task force would then also have to tell us: Are you going to not compensate someone who was here in 1960, but now lives in Las Vegas? Well, that, I think that's a question that we need to know the time frames um, of the atrocities and. The residence criteria during what time frames do people have to show residence of either themselves or their ancestors in California? So that's guidance from the task force. Yeah, because remember when 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 we show the harm of current residential segregation patterns on today's population and the effect of the ongoing discrimination in housing, it that's different than what economists and, 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 and Professor Garrity were just saying, which is, okay, we're, we're going to find a finite population of black people who lived in 1965, and what's the difference in their home value today? That, that's a different calculation. I was going to quickly comment in terms of the residency requirements. Um, that's in part, I'm glad that we kind of settled, we settled the question yesterday around the broader scope of the community of eligibility so that we can then address more granular questions around eligibility like residency requirements. You know, does you have to be a, you know, a current resident of California? Would a California birth certificate suffice for people who have moved across 
state lines, you know, due to them being pushed out of the, of the state. I know Secretary Weber, she, um, I asked her this question in January, and she had her own opinion and stated that, you know, I, she thinks that it should be defined to people who currently live in California. Ultimately, I know it's up to the task force to decide, but I'm glad that uh, Kramer and, and Spriggs brought, brought that issue up because that's something that we're also going to have to resolve soon. Um, I want to go to Member Scott Lewis. Um, do you have any comments or thoughts as an advisory committee member um, on on what we've been hearing so far? Sure. Um, so at the beginning of our conversation, I wrote down on my pad here, um, you know, time frame by harm by community eligibility, right? And I think this is this is what we're discussing, um, or at least have come to. And so it, it does sound that that we've kind of arrived at something that is at least the beginning of a workable model, um, you know, as I think finally put by by Dr. Cremo. Um, the you know the question the, the question is you know as you put it you know chair Moore um, one of you know the the further refinement of eligibility I re I recall when you asked the question to uh, Dr. Wilbur when she visited and she basically said you know contemporary California residents so I think you know as a starting point for the the group we could start there. Um, that to me, that to me is 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 where we are, right? Because the, the hope of this conversation is to actually give you some, you know, some some workable parameters where you can go away today and and, and start doing that. So, you know, at the moment we are talking about starting with with, with California residents um, who are currently here. Uh, my sense is that this question, even amongst the grassroots organizations who've been working on these questions of, of eligibility um, in their respective domains, they haven't also they have they don't also have a, a clear sense as to where they stand on that issue. So right now, you know, we have Secretary Weber's uh, comments at the previous meeting, which says to focus on contemporary California residents. Um, it does sound as if there is a possibility for us to, you know. Open up the scope, um, you know, as as numbers come in and as we get clarification um, with with increased data. Uh, so that's so that's where I am right now. Um, and I think, you know, as as um, Dr. Campbell has put forward, I mean, really, the conversation so far has has seemed to be fairly consistent. Um, I think the idea of looking at various timeframes, looking at the the harms that occurred within those timeframes. As then further refined or operationalized by the community of eligibility that we defined yesterday, that that should be the starting point. Um, I, I want to jump in. I mean, we don't know. You know, is there a legal standard for residency already in California, um, which you might be. Um, constrained to use, or maybe you can come up with another definition. I don't know. Certainly somebody can't move to California today and, and, and overnight be eligible. eligible. So, you know, what's, what is yeah. the residency standard? That's, that's yeah. something you all have to, to, have to resolve. But one thing you might consider is, you know, once you determine how long an individual uh, would have been in residence in the state, uh, I think maybe um, uh, uh, member Lewis even proposed at one time, you know, setting up Venn diagrams, you know, sort of circles of, um, you know, sort of shared attributes. 
And after you get, you know, your series of circles, you know, the, all these individuals in the circles, then you could rank them uh, and determine, you know, that would be another way to determine what the compensation would be. Yeah, do, do you want to say people who are resident at the time this legislation passed to prevent people from moving to California to say, now that you resolved it all, I want my whatever, 3000 or whatever to my home ownership. Yeah, I was thinking that I just Googled um, What I can say is as a person who moved to, to California, I remember the only instruction I received was that I needed to update my driver's license within 10 days of arriving. You know, and and so and this is why I asked this question actually several meetings ago uh, when we when we first broached the topic of eligibility. I was very interested in what the California residency requirement was, um, and I asked, "Did you do you need a birth certificate? Do you need to have you know a driver's license? What is it?" Um, and so I was very keen to to you know hear what what Secretary Weber you know would say once that question was posed uh, to her um, a couple of meetings ago. And, you know, I think it's it's still left, you know, to whatever the normative expectations or standards for California residency are. Um, I think Chair Moore was about to, to provide us with the official with the official statement. I remember Grills, perhaps. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I don't know what um, she may have found, but the only thing I know, because I moved here from out of state to go to graduate school, um, and at that point in time, the UC system, established a, a standard which you had to be here three years before you could actually get the resident rate for tuition. So I don't know if that's still in, in play, but while the state may not, some of the institutions within the state may provide us with some potential um, examples to follow. I would say that three-year criteria is pretty, pretty standard. Remember Tamaki, you're recognized. I have to unmute. Um, so this is uh, more of a, maybe it's a dumb question. It's sort of a filtering question. Because we don't have the disaggregated data, um, are we using the 1965 as a sort of de facto filter? Because most of the immigrants coming from um, Africa or the Caribbean our post-1965, <clears throat> the date of the Immigration and Nat Nationality uh, Act, uh, Reform Act, Immigration Reform Act of 1965. And if that's the sort of mechanism, which makes sense to me, um, is it applicable to the other categories? So we've been talking about redlining and housing, but if the task force talks about other harms that you've listed, um, would you, is that a methodology that could be used as a starting point to separate um, and, and and lift up and, and uh, focus on the targeted uh, beneficiary class? Does that question make any sense? Well, I, I, I'm the, I'm the holdout here in understanding what was offered by 1965. We don't have longitudinal data. We do not 
have a way of saying you, you were a homeowner in 1965, what happened to your home ownership? We don't have data to do that on scale. The, and we can't, we, 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 we can't recreate the existing longitudinal data set. So we have what we have. So I'm not sure. If it's the issue of mass incarceration, we know mass incarceration became far more intense way after 1965. And so where we ask to model what is the impact of that mass incarceration, we would have to be looking at a population in California that's more recent than 1965 in order to model what do we think was the lost income. The other question, uh, Professor Spriggs, related to housing is ownership versus renting <clears throat> because of redlining and racial covenants, people couldn't own homes or they were precluded and they had to rent. And it was a damage caused by redlining. So when we, when you do the calculations, how does that net out for people who, and let's take the figure of 1965 for whatever reason that they were here as of 1965, but redlining precluded them from home ownership. Uh, but clearly damaged by the policy. The, the studies I was referring to look at maps of redlining in cities and then show how that impacted the current population and the gap in home ownership and the effect that had on current residential segregation. You, you could, you could do something different. You could say, I want to look at the current population benchmark up to 1965 and make some sort of estimate of what I think is a, is a difference. That, that's a different approach than what some people have done before. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's not, I'll, I'll, I'll let the others who raise this possibility explain what they think their methodology is. I'm suggesting that it's the, the difference in the current population's effect, which would get me a number, a number of what I think homeownership would have been, and what I think the wealth gap is because of the difference in the home ownership and the lingering effects of differences in, in, in values because of that. I'm, I'm not sure what others have in mind. Well, um, yeah, I, my understanding is the, the question how, how do rents um, renting instead of owning uh, play into it. Um, this is a bit out of my water, but uh, wouldn't it um, uh, wouldn't that be reflected in the differential home ownership rates and therefore in the differential uh, wealth uh, household wealth due to home ownership? Because one group of people pays rent every month and that goes away, whereas the other group pays their mortgages and um, they acquire um, equity. 
Um, so I, I think that's how I believe that rents are included in the model. Please, other economists, um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Well, yes, that's how it would be included. Yeah. You'd be estimating that effect, but, but, but if you're doing it on the current population, that's not That, 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 that doesn't get back to, you know, in 1965, those base, that base period didn't or did or did not include, um, people yeah. with descendants of slaves. I, I threw out the idea of 1965 mainly to get around the uh, recent immigration, um, debate and I, I haven't had time to think it through, so, um, I think this was just one idea of how a rough estimate could be produced um, rather than uh, tying individuals uh, to the harm. So this might, might, may or may not be appropriate. I, um, in, in, in my mind, when, when it comes to kind of dealing with these broader categories, each category will have a different framework, a different equation or estimator. Yeah. The so if we're dealing with hostlessness or we're, we're dealing with another atrocity or harm, different dates can signify different things so that we can internalize what the task force has kind of given us as instructions based on those parameters. And we have a community of eligibility. If we are given these different atrocities categories by the task force to calculate this, this, and this, each of these will require different e equations because each of them are measuring different atrocities or harms. And I think once we get into figuring out what exactly the task force wants us to look at from that long list that I gave, plus what they want to add or subtract, we're going to take each of those atrocities and given those parameters, we'll give an equation or an estimate that's, that's shown. You might tell us, focus on 1965 here. You might tell us focus on um, the 1800s here, so on and so on. So I think trying to frame all the atrocities in one is a little bit difficult right now because each of those categories will have different calculations. And then the idea is once an individual from this community of eligibility that the task force has identified and voted on, kind of raises their hand and they check whatever categories applies to them, one, all, some, then these different calculations kick in. So an example I was given in our meeting, let's say, for example, a direct descendant of slavery, you know, I'll name them Casey Campbell, okay, even though I'm not, so I wouldn't be in the group, but let's say this person identifies whatever the body has put in place in terms of residency, whether or not they can make a claim, they will determine what exactly this person needs to present to make that claim. This person is then saying houselessness, mass incarceration, whatever the atrocities are. It's then our job to figure out if these particular elements are checked, what are the damages, whether it's a range or a fixed amount associated with these categories for that individual. And those calculations will depend on different dates. 
they'll depend on different parameters and they'll depend on different models. So I think where we are right now is trying to get a framework in place to say, one, what are the categories you want us to focus on from the task force? What are the residence requirements, as um, Task Force member Lewis kind of highlighted earlier, which is very important? And then as it relates to each of the categories that you give us, what are the dates that we need to figure out in terms of damage period? And if these dates allow us to kind of intrinsically disaggregate the data, we can. If they don't, then we'll kind of come back to say, if you chose, for example, 1964, 1965, then you might be getting a broader model that includes some noise. But if you choose this, then you might be getting a model that focuses more specifically on the population. So I think each of these categories will require a microscopic view of inputs that will come from the task force before we can start giving you broad dates or guidelines. I think each atrocity, each harm is very different. I have a, fo a follow-up question to that, and it's, it's really a clarifying question. So at yesterday's task force meeting, the task force decided to define the community of eligibility based on lineage determined by an individual being an African-American descendant of a chattel enslaved person or the descendant of a free black person living in the United States, so not necessarily California, but in the United States prior to the end of the 19th century. So I guess my clarifying question is, you know, how does that lineage standard that we decided on yesterday, um, along with the potential to, um, you know, limit redress to present California residents or contemporary residents, where do the where does the dates come in to that? If let's say it's that lineage standard plus contemporary uh, resident. Well, it, the, the atrocity and redlining would be, we know when redlining occurred. And so it would be estimating what are the lingering effects of redlining. If you tell us mass incarceration and you want an estimate of what we think the effects would be, then you might tell us a year that you believe penal code changes or enforcement changes in California dictate the creation of a sufficient disparity that anyone incarcerated after 1980 or anyone incarcerated after 1985. That's, that's what Professor Campbell was getting at when she was saying you know, that's where the years would come from. You would identify what's the atrocity you are trying to correct for, and that's when you would tell us what's the year. And that would help us to estimate what we think the effect would be, how we would get the data to try and make the estimate of how much, during a period in which race seems to have been the dominant factor in disparities and who got incarcerated, during that period, what's the cost, what's our estimate, what's our best estimate for the, the, the cost to those who were incarcerated? In terms of the lineage question, 
remember there will be a challenge because unfortunately a lot of people who are incarcerated may have been in foster care or may have had broken relationships that make their connection to their relative more difficult to establish. They may not always know the links that could let them trace their lineage. So you should just be aware that that may be a population that faces a bigger challenge than for some of these others. Thank you. So what I think I'm hearing is that given what we decided yesterday along with you know, the potential residency requirement of being a, a, a current resident, it seems as if there might be a peer system where it's all for descendants of enslaved people, but, you know, depending on if you were in the state of California longer, you probably experienced more harms. And so, you know, if you're a California resident for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you'll probably be eligible for more than someone who came to California and is still a descendant of slaves um, later on in the timeline. Sure, you may not be eligible because when when you declare the when when the task force says this is the this is the incident for which we think it constitutes the atrocity, yeah, you may not have been in California then. Great. Yes, member Scott Lewis. Um, so I want to go back to what Dr. Campbell was proposing earlier. Um, where she was stating basically, you know, you would have this further process of, of selection, right? And it might even be self-selection. And so what we can do is we keep, we keep the qualification of California residency um, stable across each of those moments. So if you are, in fact, say, claiming harm from redlining, what you would need to do is establish California residency, right? Um, at that time or provide some evidence of California residency at that time. If you are claiming harm for the period that we identify as incorporating or including the period of mass incarceration, so this is response to um, Dr. Spriggs' earlier comment about are we going to go tra chase and trace down people? Well, no, right? I mean, you understand that the harms might induce, right, mobility. African-American history is about <laughs> harms inducing mobility and migration, right? This is why, you know, black folks are are where they are in this country. The point is that if you can provide evidence to having California residency in a period of time, that will then help right, establish the points. So this is why community eligibility, harm, and time period is the framework that I'm trying to recommend. Um, and as Dr. Campbell put it, you would then have to, you know, we would then determine uh, or allow for the determination of eligibility, further eligibility, I should say, Right within within the parameters of each of those areas. So I, I think what Dr. Camlin and and the group wants from us as a task force is right now to look at the 13 or so the dozen areas um, that were proposed and to decide uh, which of those we want to prioritize a privilege, um, and then they could go away and start actually figuring these things out based upon these parameters. Oh, uh, this is. Lisa Holder again? Yes, Member Holder, you're recognized, sorry. So I understand that some of the most important parameters, as you said, are the dates, the atrocities, and uh, residency. Is it another important parameter that you're going to need guidance on from us is valuation of the atrocity? 
So some atrocities are more inherently quantitative, right? So when you're talking about housing, you can use metrics having to do with building equity and all that stuff, and that's your bailiwick as economists, right, thinking quantitatively. But certain other atrocities are more qualitative. Um, and so in terms of the qualitative atrocities and harms, you know, lawyers and panel juries who give evaluation for qualitative harms, do you want us to give you the valuation for the qualitative harms? Um, you know, and, and, and let me be more specific. It's right now it's a little heady and theoretical, but um, so if you're talking about uh, mental health, right? Um, you know, because of discrimination in mental health, there have been certain impacts on physiological and mental health. That seems to me like a qualitative valuation. And will you want us to provide you with the index for that, or are you coming up with that? I think you have to come up with that. I think the thing about the national model that Dr. Garrity has done is it is incorporated the extent to which black people live shorter lives has a lot to do with issues of accumulation that you can build up for inheritance, as an example. The fact that you may have suffered trauma is built into either your ability to work or 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 or, or, or your effort to to, to 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 make earnings. So in his national model, all of that gets incorporated because all of those are the differences that create the disparity between the wealth that gets accumulated. But but as we said, it, to disaggregate that, because people move about and you can't that uh, specific beginning and ending date because the populations aren't the same. So you, you'd have to tell us what you want it as the value of those things because it wouldn't be incorporated in this approach. Member Gross? Yeah, I had a similar question um, because I noted that um, in your slide uh, you mentioned that um, your model would take into account emotional and physical health consequences. Um, and I, I was I was not clear how you would do that. I mean, we're, I'm in the middle of a five-year study for the state of California on um, communities, um, different five different priority populations in the state, all racial groups except one. And we're having to use a Bayesian model to try to calculate um, issues related to being unserved, underserved, and inappropriately served and the mental health consequences of that and we have to then go into state and national databases to, to, to build a model. I don't see us as task force members being able to do that level of complexity. So, and I do think that it's important, as you note in your model, that the emotional and physical health consequences be taken into account. But I'm not sure that we would have the capability 
to tell, to give you a metric or method for how to incorporate that? I, I think the inclusion of that was specifically we know that there are these adverse emotional and psychological harm. And as economists, we are equipped with tools to calculate harm from a quantitative standpoint. So we specifically included that statement so that we could start thinking about how exactly we could get an estimate because, one, it cannot be neglected and it cannot be omitted. The process of including that, again, as a member holder is saying, this move from qualitative to quantitative, given this type of category, um, will require input from the task force, first and foremost, and, of course, some guidance from us as economists in terms of what might be appropriate tools for calculations. What that looks like right now in terms of the actual calculation is a matter that will pop up many times for discussion. We might have ideas about how we can capture this, but I think these ideas will have to be refined and outlined by the task force. It's almost equivalent, and this is not a, a, a good representation, but almost like when you have a lawsuit and there's an estimate for pain and suffering, and somebody would say, oh, exactly, what do you mean, pain and suffering? And it differs by individual, it, it, it's very personal, it differs by harm category, so I think there's a further discussion and a, a back and forth with the task force about how exactly will we capture these qualitative elements associated with emotional harm and distress from, from a system that has been so extractive and so damaging. I think that's further discussion, but we purposefully included that statement because we know it has to be included. But we haven't refined this. We will need input from the task force as we dig down deeper into these categories. And there, there might even be precedent for um, pain and suffering in other cases that might have some similarity to this that could be taken as a rough guideline um, of what, uh, what the descendants of the enslaved in the U.S. could be, uh, in, in California, could be asking for. Thank you. That's a good point. There's some definitely some international models folks we can look into. But I want to do a time check. It's 11:43, and um, we have about 15 more minutes for this discussion and potential action items. So I want to go to Member Scott Lewis. Thank you. Um, I so see you. Have, uh, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, I see Mullen had her hand raised. I don't know if you want to defer to her or. Go ahead. Go ahead. Hey, just, a, just a quick thought. You know, when you are looking at the categories of harms, it's essential that we have, you know, as, as uh, Professor Campbell said, these are what we're talking about are snapshots, you know, looking at a moment in time. So it's essential that we have in times, you know, in time points um, from which to make the calculations. But if you, you know, if you choose, you could pick two or three hopefully not more than that, you know, potential endpoints from which we could derive calculations. So you could see, you know, what do the numbers look like if the endpoint is 1960, if it's 2000, if it's 2020, for example. Which is another way to give you more data uh, and also to get a sense of, you know, what the pattern of the harms looks like. 
across time. Thank you. Uh, Member Scott Lewis. Thank you, Chair Moore. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I was hoping that we could maybe use some of these remaining minutes to, to provide some, you know, confirmation uh, to the uh, economics group on what areas we want them to, to focus on. So there was there were about a dozen, I think, that were provided in the in the PowerPoint presentation. Um, you know, I, I would note that the area of um, the, the the kind of health harms, you know, maybe encompasses the the questions around the psychological trauma, etc., that two of the members brought up earlier. Um, you know, so I think what we will, what we need is just to confirm for for the for the group where we want them to focus. Okay, so yeah. let we can start the discussion. We uh, can the DOJ or Miss um, Professor Campbell pull up your screen again, um, the particular side where those categories are more listed. Thank you. Not a problem. While they do that, may I ask a uh, question? Yes, member girls, you recognize. I just I want to be really concrete so that it's really clear what it is we need to provide. So I've, I've kind of created my own running list. And so it, correct me if I'm wrong or if I've left anything out, but the concrete list of parameters that we need to articulate for the economists include the who, which we know is lineage-based, um, and will it? And we need to define whether or not it will be direct victims only and or their descendants. Secondly, residency requirements. Third, the categories of harm, at which harms that are California-specific. Um, and it could be two or three endpoints to derive your calculations. Um, for what fourth, what time frame for each category of harm? Um, and, and, and sometimes that involves a start and end date and perhaps, but I, if I'm understanding right, um, you want the snapshots that require end time points, which would be a start and end point. And fifth, um, do we want the economists to provide us with economic evidence to accompany our other forms of harm, evidence of harm? And then sixth, I'm understanding that you would apply those parameters to model one and or model two, probably to both. Um, am I missing? And then we still need to provide input on how to categorize or how to quantify the emotional and physical health consequences. Is that, is that a complete list? Well, we, we were asking you to agree with us that model one isn't. I'm sorry, say that again. You were, you were a little muffled. We, we have been asking that you agree with us that Model 1 is not workable. Oh, the framework okay. of the national model is not workable at the state level. It isn't possible to have a solid methodology for disentangling a state. Okay. For Model 2 only. And then and I, I got it right for everything else. And yes, ma'am. And yeah. I didn't miss anything. Okay. Thank you. I'm wondering, Member Groves, if you could put that comprehensive list in the chat. Maybe DOJ can transcribe it so we can use that as a framework for this discussion. Okay. And 
the task force has had deep testimony on various of these items on the list. That's why we were suggesting them. If the task force thought, after hearing the testimony on these items, you felt, yes, the evidence is overwhelming, we want you to give us estimates of how much harm each of those translates to. Is this the correct slide? I'm not sure it's the correct slide. It's still yeah, not a I'm trying. Uh, I, I, I'm sharing the screen. I'm sorry, this is Trini. If you could just let me know what slide I can forward through. Oh, okay. I, I go. Number six. Yeah. Slide six. I wondered if my computer got possessed. Is this the one? Thank yes. You. Thank yeah. you. So, Member Scott Lewis, as an advisory committee member, I want to defer to you on this portion, and then also keep in mind that we have 10 minutes left for this section. So, I'm I'm not sure if we're going to be able to come to a decision on which categories we want to prioritize. But then again, I'll, you know, I'll defer to you in terms of how to proceed. Well, I don't think I don't think we're being asked to prioritize the existing list here. I think we're just being asked to agree or to add or remove, um, you know. So in other words, do we have a problem with eminent domain being an area, yes or no? Intellectual uh, property deprivation, yes or no? Um, you know, that's, that's all I think we're being asked to do. Um, the rest of the discussion, I think, has clarified um, a large part of what the scope of, of work needs to be. Um, Dr. Spriggs, you know, has just asked us you know, whether the, the the national framework will work. I think we have effectively said, no, we are going with the, the second model, um, which is why we're discussing these, you know, these areas right now. So all we need is the task force to just say, yes, these, these harms qualify for what we're talking about, or there are others that do not show up on this list that we want to have included. Thank you. Okay, so in the interest of time, I will list out the categories. Number one, unjust property tankies by eminent domain. Number two, intellectual property deprivations. Number three, houselessness. Four, unwarranted police violence. Five, segregated education. Six, non-representative estate commissions. Seven, housing discrimination. Eight, labor discrimination. Nine, environmental harm. Ten, mass incarceration and sentencing. Eleven, health harms. Twelve, transgenerational effects. Thirteen, other potential harms. So essentially, you know, as a chair, I guess I can say I entertain a motion to, um, you know, adopt all of these or add some or reduce some just to structure the rest of the discussion for the next ten minutes. Um, I'm, I'm supposing there's some motion to be entertained, and then we can have a discussion as to whether we include all of these um, or other other steps. Sir, Madam Chair. Uh, Member Jones, so you're recognized. I would like to make a motion that we include all 13 of state-specific arms atrocities framework plans. 
Thank you. Uh, so it has been properly moved and seconded that, oh, sorry, is there a second? A second. So it has been properly moved and seconded that the task force adopt Model 2, the state-specific harms atrocities framework, which includes all 13 harms as Is there any discussion on the matter? This is a point of clarification or procedural, but if we want to add, I think there's a lot that needs to be added. Do we do that in the next motion, or do we ask to, or, or how, how, how do we get that done? Maybe I'm think, wrong, but number 13, other potential harms might gather that, but I could be wrong. I would agree with that. Yeah. And then after the motion, I guess we can do another motion to add specific additional harms. Okay. Does that answer the question? Okay, sorry. Okay, so is there any discussion on the matter on the floor right now? Uh, Chair Moore? Yes, Member Scott Lewis, you're recognized. I would just ask that the number five segregated education actually include uh, through tertiary education, so at the university level as well. Um, I think that is, is an issue that, you know, helps, I think, open up the time scope, actually, of the question of, of, of educational discrimination. Um, so we are just talking about the period of, of actual, you know, legal segregation um, in education um, previous to, you know, um, to Brown, but, but the, the ongoing kind of issue of discrimination in higher education, especially um, in the, the uh, California systems. Thank you. So is there any other discussion? Okay, hearing no further discussion, I'll cue Parliamentarian Johnson for a roll call vote. And again, to restate the motion, for the task force to adopt Model 2, state-specific harms atrocities framework, which includes all 13 of the categories, and in our discussion, we noted that segregation education would also include tertiary education. Uh, Parliamentarian Johnson? Yes, thank you, Madam Chair. I will begin by asking uh, Chair Moore for her vote. Aye. Chair Moore votes aye. Vice Chair Brown? Member Bradford? Aye. Member Bradford votes aye. Member Grills? Aye. Member Grills votes aye. Member Holder? Aye. Member Holder votes aye. Member Jones-Sawyer? Aye. Member Jones-Sawyer votes aye. Member Lewis? Aye. Member Lewis votes aye. Member Tamaki? Aye. Member Tamaki votes aye. Member Montgomery Step? Aye. Member Montgomery Step votes aye. Madam Chair, there were eight members voting, and there were eight ayes and zero nays. Thank you. There are eight ayes and zero nays, so the ayes have it, and the motion carries. The task force has adopted Model 2, state-specific harms, atrocities, and frameworks.
now I'd like to turn to Member Holder um, in the event that you would also like to uh, introduce a motion. Two, nine, four, no. Uh, yeah, let me just think for a second how to craft this. Two, nine, four, two, seven, six, one. I would introduce a motion that the... Yeah, so I'm also interested in... in I'm sorry, go ahead, Member Holder. Okay. Yeah, I would introduce a motion that the task force do take the time now to do an analysis of what should be included in other potential harms. Marco Gonzalez. <laughs> you tell me I should be fine, except. And remember, I think you're unmuted. You're um, not muted. May I ask a clarifying question? Yes, member girls here recognize. Because we are still compiling the harms, um, this is not going to be cast in concrete what we decide today. So there would be an opportunity to uh, elaborate on whatever it is that we've identified today. Is that correct? Correct. Really, even at our April meeting, potentially. Mm -hmm. But to, to Member Holder's point, sorry, I, I got disconnected. I think this would be a good time to, to list out any potential harms that the task force members think needs to be included. And then, you know, at the advisory committee, Jovan and I can, you know, take notes in, um, with the economists and, and come back for the April meeting so that we can keep this as a continuous agenda item. So, um, one, potential harm that I just want to put in on the record that is, I think, California-specific in some ways, is the the war on drugs or the, the crack cocaine epidemic, um, the epicenters, you know, in Los Angeles and whatnot. So I would say, and to Grill's point, we're still uncovering that, right? We're going to learn more about the war on drugs literally later this afternoon. So I'm just putting that on our radar in terms of a potential and distinct harm. Is there anyone else? Yeah, I I think that um, that the, a distinct harm or distinct atrocity is slavery that existed in California for that limited period between 1860 and 1865. Um, yes, and also the black exclusion policies. Uh, during that period, so policies that excluded escaped enslaved people from coming into the state, etc. Thank you. I know there's also a potential harm um, in terms of like um, family welfare or child welfare, like in the 60s and 70s in California, where you know the state would you know go into homes of welfare recipients. Were African American, and if there was, you know, a father in the home, you would um, get rescinded your benefits. And there's actually a movie about that. I think it's called Claudine. Um, that was put out in the 70s. So, um, still trying to figure out a, a, the, a, the right way to articulate what uh, what that harm is necessarily, but it's around the kind of discriminatory um, family welfare practices practiced 
in the state, particularly in the uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s. I'm wondering if Dr. Grills can also articulate a harm around foster care and placement and removal, because there's been a lot of atrocities on that issue, and I know that you have a lot of expertise there. And it's, uh, um, in terms of the foster care system, it's the disproportionate um, involvement of black children in the child welfare system in California. The rates are ridiculously high. Um, but that's also coupled with the mass incarceration issue because the numbers of black children uh, in the child welfare, welfare system was also associated with the increase of black parents, especially black women being incarcerated. Um, the other part in terms of our children is the issue of the overrepresentation of black children in the juvenile justice system in California and the many harms that they experienced, including uh, loss of educational um, attainment um, and employment and the issue of transition-aged youth who, if you were in the child welfare system or in the juvenile justice system and black, the likelihood of achieving gainful employment um, is very, very low, but the likelihood of incarceration and homelessness is extremely high. The other thing that I'll add to that is the issue of homelessness, the harm associated with the over-representation over of black folks in this state who are unhoused. Thank you. Are there any other contributions? I believe homelessness was the second harm listed on the presentation. Are there any other um, contributions, keeping note of time, that were two minutes over this period? You know, we're probably going to learn a little bit more about this from the experts today, but I would say as an adjunct to what Professor Grill said, um, sort of pertaining to youth is gang prevention. Uh, you know, the way that gang prevention was implemented in such a biased manner um, that destabilized so many youth in California over the last 50 years. So I would add that. Okay, so I just want to thank the economic consultant team for your hard work and for this presentation and um, the advisory committee, which consists of Jovan Scott-Lewis and myself, um, we'll take into account all of the uh, contributions for our, from our esteemed task force members, and um, we'll hopefully put this on the agenda for April so that we can continue our conversation. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. So the next item on our agenda is item 16, witness panel number one, which will run from noon to 2 p.m. on the criminal justice system. And we have some amazing panelists that I'll now introduce, and each person has 10 minutes to speak, uh, and I'll be keeping time. So, Professor, our first panelist is Professor Rachel Barkow. Professor Barkow is a Charles Delegation Professor of Law and the Faculty Director of the Zimrov Center on the Administration of Criminal Law at NYU. Then we'll hear from Dr. James Pitts. Dr. James Pitts is an Assistant Professor as an assistant professor in the Department of Criminology at Fresno State University. Thomas Harvey is the executive director of the Children's Defense Fund and national litigation strategist. 
Tika Keith is the founder of Life Development Group, co-founder of the Social Equity Owners Workers Association, and is now a social equity cannabis retail license owner and is, in fact, the first black American woman or African-American woman to own a cannabis, cannabis dispensary in uh, Los Angeles. Then we'll hear from Cerise Castle. Castle is a Los Angeles-based journalist specializing in arts and culture, civil rights, crime, and human interest stories. We'll also hear from Tasha Henneman. Tasha Henneman oversees PRC's public policy and government affairs, as well as a communications function. We'll also hear from Nicole Porter. Porter manages the sentencing project, state and local advocacy efforts on sentencing reform, voting rights, and elimination of racial disparities in the criminal justice system. Our last two panelists will be Brendan Woods, who has more than 15 years of experience in criminal defense litigation and has responsibility within the Alameda County Public Defender's Office. And he was appointed public defender in December 2012. And then last but certainly not least, we'll hear from Susan Burton. Susan Burton is the founder of A New Way of Life, a nonprofit organization that provides housing and other support to formerly incarcerated women. So without further ado, Professor Barkow, you may begin your expert testimony when you're ready. Thank you again Thank for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Um, and I want to just apologize in advance because of the time change of the hearing. I'll have to leave at 1.20 because I have another meeting that I couldn't move, but happy to take any questions or follow-ups that people have via email or any other um, method. Um, so um, what I would like to do is share some of the ways that the operation of criminal law enforcement and punishment discriminates against black people in America. And I'm not going to cover it all uh, in the time that I have, but I'm going to give you an overview. Uh, and I know that you have other witnesses who are going to cover other aspects of how um, bias in housing and transportation, um, education and the like um, exist. And they intersect with criminal law um, because they do help explain why a disproportionate number of people of color um, are committing crimes relative to their proportions in the population. Um, so when you see statistics that might show homicides or robberies um, are being disproportionately committed by black people, um, there are these structural biases that uh, put them at a disadvantage in terms of other opportunities that help account for that. Um, and so you can imagine if you don't have jobs or educational opportunities, uh, turning to criminal behaviors uh, is sometimes the only option. Um, and I'm not going to focus on those. Uh, what I want to focus on for you today um, is the widespread evidence of bias within the administration of criminal law itself. So we have these other forms of bias that may lead people to commit crimes, but I want to show you the ways in which how we enforce criminal law um, biases people, uh, has biases against people of color. Um, so if we could go uh, two more slides forward. Um, to set the stage, thank you. Um, what I'm going to do is just first give you a quick kind of bird's eye view uh, that the United States incarcerates way more people um, than any other uh, country in the world by orders of magnitude. Next slide. Um, you're going to see how uh, those people are allocated um, mostly in state prisons. It's about 2 million people that are incarcerated, uh, but some in local jails, and most of those are there uh, pre-trial. And then if you look at the next slide, um, you're going to see that that's really the tip of the iceberg because we have millions more people who find themselves under uh, a system of correctional control with parole, probation, um, and other forms of supervision. Uh, at the next slide, um, we'll give you an indication of what drives this, um, which is mostly state decisions. If this is not the federal government, um, it's mostly states. 
uh, making decisions to use incarceration this way. Um, and that is true of California, uh, which is um, the second the second largest number of people in prison in the United States are in California. Uh, so it has been a leader in terms of total number of people. Uh, and then if you look at the slide after this one, um, you will see that it's a disproportionately large number of people who are incarcerated are people of color. Uh, so this is the overall number of 60% in America. Um, in California, it's even worse. Uh, more than 72% of the people who are incarcerated in California are black or Hispanic. Um, and we see similar dynamics uh, in terms of disparities for people under criminal justice supervision. Uh, you know, just a huge uh, proportion of them um, are people of color. Uh, now, as I said that at the outset, some of this is because we have a disproportionate number of people of color committing crimes, um, again, because of a variety of structural disadvantages. Um, but what I want to show you now is the way in which this number, this large number of people who are incarcerated or under criminal justice supervision, the way in which that is because of the way criminal law operates um, and disproportionately targets them. So if um, we go to the next slide, I'm going to begin by talking to you a little bit about policing. Um, and I'm only going to just give you a select sampling of studies. There are tons, but this will give you an idea. So the next slide shows you uh, what we see in terms of traffic stops. Um, so the police are not pulling everyone in America over at equal rates. Um, instead, they are disproportionately pulling over black drivers as opposed to white drivers. Um, and there's a really interesting study that shows that these differences dissipate as it gets darker during the daytime when, uh, as it gets, we get towards dusk and evening when police officers cannot see the skin color of the driver, um, these differences start to go away. Um, so the darker the sky, the less pronounced the disparity, uh, which is to say, or put it a different way, is when police officers can see the color of the skin of the driver, they are disproportionately pulling over people who are black. Um, the next slide will show you that the people who are pulled over, um, so they're disproportionately black people in the first instance, um, and we also know that they're more likely to be searched when they're pulled over. Um, and interestingly, and this, by the way, is from an LAPD study in particular, um, when they are searched, when drivers are searched, the black drivers are far less likely to actually have contraband on them. Um, so they're being pulled over at higher rates, but when they are pulled over, they're less likely to have done anything wrong. Um, so you can see that basically the police aren't pulling them over because they're actually engaged in wrongful behaviors, um, which is evidenced by the fact that they don't actually have anything on them when they're being pulled over. Uh, the next slide gives you a meta-analysis of um, a 20 million traffic stops and what we've learned from them across the country. Um, so what we learn is black people are almost twice as likely to be pulled over as white people. They're more likely to be searched after they've been stopped. Um, uh, and so just by getting in a car, a black driver has twice the odds of being pulled over, four times the odds of being searched. And when they are searched, they're less likely to have any kind of contraband. Uh, so another way you could put this one uh, is to say that um, there's when fewer white people are being stopped, um, and uh, when they are, they're less likely to be searched. Uh, and yet when they are searched, the white people are more likely to have contraband. Um, the next slide uh, will show you that the uh, black people who are stopped um, 
are often um, there. It's not explicable in terms of um, them having done anything wrong. Uh, studies have tried to figure out: Can you understand this in terms of gang affiliation, prior arrest records, crime rates, any of those things? Is that's what explaining why we're seeing a disproportionately large number of people being stopped who are black? Um, and when studies have sought to look into all of those things, uh, they find none of them explain it. Um, that, that in fact, it looks like the only thing that's left over to explain these stops is merely race. Um, that is why people are being pulled over. Um, if you look at the next slide, you'll see that police officers um, are often pulling black drivers over for pretextual reasons, saying things like um, they had mechanical issues, um, you know, there was something, an equipment problem with their car, um, whereas when white drivers are being pulled over, it's usually for much more serious things, um, for things, more serious driving violations, things like speeding. So again, just giving you a sense of what law enforcement officers are doing when they're exercising their discretion to pull drivers over. Uh, the next slide just gives you more detail on the reasons given for these kinds of stops. Um, and now the next slide after this one, uh, although I know California is much more of a driving state than a pedestrian state, uh, this is just to show you that we see the same dynamic when officers are stopping people who are uh, walking for pedestrians. So this data comes from Jacksonville, but it's indicative of data nationwide. Um, again, you're just far more likely to be stopped if you are a black person, um, and the rates are, are much higher. So I, I think it's important to think about how much discretion police officers have in deciding who it is they're going to have interactions with and who they're going to stop. This isn't like situations where there's an identifiable crime with a victim. Um, these are crimes where there's just way more people than could ever be uh, addressed stopped. So police are making choices, and the way they're making those choices is to target black people um, without any link to crime or misbehavior. It's just using the discretion to do that. Um, the next slide will show you that we see a similar pattern in terms of arrest rates for various kinds of low-level crimes that, again, Police have choices. We see lots of people loitering, um, people who could potentially be charged for trespass, um, but they're using their discretion um, to target these kinds of uh, arrests to communities of color. Um, the next slide will show you this is also true when it comes to drug offenses. Uh, so we know that drug use and drug trafficking, um, those are comparable by race, um, that pretty much we're seeing people, white people, black people, they are using and selling in proportion to their percentages in the population. Um, but drug arrests um, are disproportionately targeted against black people, even though the usage rates for uh, white people and black people are the same and the sales rates are the same, the police are using their discretion to um, disproportionately target people who are black. Um, the next slide will show you this starkly with marijuana. Um, again, the use rates are comparable, but it's black people who are getting arrested for possessing pot, um, not white people. Um, and then the next slide will show you that this bias um, isn't just about these questions of who gets stopped and who gets arrested. Um, we also see bias in police use of force um, and the kind of force that's used in police interactions where it's disproportionately used against people of color, um, and in particular, you'll, as you see here, against black people. The next slide will show you that the police are more than twice as likely uh, to use force against people of color. And remember, they're stopping more people of color in the first place. 
Um, and so um, you're twice as likely to then use force in these interactions. Uh, the next slide um, is, sadly, uh, the most extreme use of force resulting in the police killing somebody. Um, and again, you are far more likely to be killed by the police if you are a black person uh, in, a, in America. Um, so the slide after this one um, will explain that um, this is not because uh, black people are more likely to be armed than white people. So if we're trying to understand why are these police use of force uh, interactions taking place, um, it's not because of a differential in terms of black people versus white people being armed. Um, if you're a black person and you're unarmed, um, you are three and a half times more likely to be shot by the police than if you're a white person who is unarmed. Um, and what we find when we study this is that what seems to be explaining it is that we see large uh, instances of inequality in the communities where uh, black people are suffering this kind of police use of force. So it's not tied to the use of force by the person uh, who has it used against them by the police. Uh, so the next slide is to just explain the horrible tragedy of all this is that we're seeing all this excessive policing, all this uh, policing that is disproportionately targeting uh, black people and communities of color, um, and it's doing a terrible job at actually solving serious crimes. Um, and it's particularly bad, the police uh, are particularly bad at solving crimes with black victims. So another way in which uh, criminal law enforcement discriminates uh, is by solving fewer cases that involve black victims. Uh, and I should say that I think one reason why this happens is because there is not as much cooperation in those cases, precisely because uh, communities of color have such a distrust of the police because of all those biased stops and the um, use of force against them. It really creates a vicious circle with a lot of distrust, lack of cooperation, and therefore more ineffective policing in solving these cases with uh, black victims. So I could occupy tons of time on this. I know I've gone super quickly, but I hope this gives you at least an indication of that kind of bias. Um, the next slide is going to introduce you to other forms of bias in the system, and I'd like to start just by talking about what happens in prosecution. Uh, so the next slide will just tell you about those people that I mentioned who are detained uh, before their trial. They haven't been found convicted of anything. Um, it's about a half a million people who find themselves in this situation. Um, you are way more likely to get detained pretrial in America if you are black than if you are white, and it has nothing to do with the crimes that you were charged with. Um, if you hold all that constant, you look at the crimes charged, what you find is just black people are getting detained more pretrial. Um, their bail amounts, where there is bail, are set at much higher rates than white people. Again, controlling for everything you control. We look at the type of crime, criminal record, and there's still this inexplicable difference that looks to be based on nothing other than race. Um, the next slide shows you that we see the same bias in charging decisions, um, where uh, if you're a white defendant, you're far more likely to have a serious charge dismissed against you than a black defendant. Um, and again, that's all controlling for the kind of crime you committed uh, and your previous record. Um, and if it's a misdemeanor kind of a case, a less serious one, if you're a white defendant, you're 75% more likely uh, than a black defendant to have those charges dismissed or reduced. Uh, again, the next slide will show you uh, that 
when you are a white defendant, you're offered better deals than black defendants. So I previously mentioned those dismissals, um, but it's also true that if you are a black defendant, you're more likely to get prison time, um, whereas white defendants are more likely to be offered things like community service uh, and fines. Uh, the next slide will show you that we see the same kind of bias in terms of who gets charged with mandatory minimums, um, habitual offender laws like California's three strikes laws. Um, you're far more likely to be charged with those if you're a black defendant than if you are a white defendant. Um, and, you know, I, I will tell you in California, that's true of three strikes uh, decisions as well. There's a study by Elsa Chen that found racial disparities in three strike sentences. Um, and she finds their greatest uh, in cases of property and drug crimes uh, as opposed to violent crimes. And that if you're an African-American uh, defendant, you're significantly more likely to get a third strike sentence. Um, so again, this kind of bias exists with all kinds of charging, including these sorts of laws. Uh, and then the next slide will show you that um, this happens at sentencing as well. Uh, the next slide is an example from the federal system where you can see that uh, people who are black are getting sentences 19% longer uh, than people who are white, controlling again for type of crime and criminal background. Uh, and the next slide shows you from a study in Georgia that same kind of variation. And here, What's even more um, disturbing is that it varied based on the shade of somebody's skin. So the darker-skinned black people got sentences even longer than medium-skinned black people, and then as compared to lighter-skinned black people. So the, the sentence got increasingly longer the darker your skin tone, um, with all black people getting sentences uh, significantly longer than people who are white. Again, controlling for, for everything else. It's just the question of the color of somebody's skin. Um, in the next slide, I can show you that we see this kind of disparity when it comes to the treatment of people who are kids, juveniles. Uh, if you're black, you're far more likely to get transferred to adult court or to be suspended. Um, the next slide will show you that we see the same kind of discrimination when we're talking about whether people get their parole revoked. Um, people who are black get their parole revoked at much higher rates. Um, and again, these are usually discretionary decisions um, that an official will have. And just like we saw with the police and we saw with prosecutors uh, and judges at sentencing, these parole officials are exercising their discretion in ways that are disproportionately negatively affecting black people. Uh, next slide will show you that um, by now you can probably anticipate that we see the same uh, bias when we're talking about um, parole and clemency, um, where you're just far more likely to get it if you're white uh, than if you're black. Um, and then finally, I will just add in the next slide uh, that your treatment while you're incarcerated is worse if you're black than white. You're more likely, for example, to be held in solitary confinement. So it's, it's everywhere you look in the administration of criminal law and punishment. Um, it's stopping by the police. It's how you, what you're arrested for. It's what you're charged with. It's whether your charges get dismissed. It's the plea that you're offered. It's the sentence you're given. It's whether your parole is revoked. We have study after study after study, and they're validated, excellent, you know, peer-reviewed studies um, that are all replicating these same findings. Um, and it doesn't end there because even after you have been through this process and you've been convicted and you've served your sentence, 
you're going to have collateral consequences um, that affect your life. You're going to be denied housing opportunities, both public and private, with landlord restrictions on people with convictions, denied licenses, drivers, and occupational. Um, it, it, it snowballs so that all these discriminatory decisions end up having this disproportionate effect through someone's entire lifetime, even after they've served their sentence. So that's the overview uh, that I wanted to give you, just to give you a hint of the kind of evidence that's out there on bias in the criminal uh, legal system in America and in California in particular. And uh, I will stay till uh, 120 and answer questions if you have them by then. And if not, please reach out. I'd be happy to help you in any way that I can. Wow. Thank you so much, Professor Barco, for that excellent presentation. And for folks who want to follow along and, and with those slides and with the other presentations, um, you can go to our website at oag.ca.gov slash AB3121. And the meeting materials for this month, which are 600 page, pages long, which includes all of these amazing presentations, are available for you all to uh, look at and follow along. So thank you again, Professor Barco. Well, now we'll hear from Dr. James Pitts. And Dr. James Pitts, uh, welcome. And you can begin your expert testimony when you're ready. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Dr. James Pitts from California State University of Fresno. And today I'll be discussing how the justice system can be used to justify reparations as trans slavery and contemporary slavery. Unfortunately, black Americans continue to endure persistent inequalities resulting from slavery and in some ways continue to be subjected to involuntary servitude, much like slaves. The evidence of this is found in substantial racial disparities, both legally and socioeconomically. Across the board, blacks are more disadvantaged than other groups. In terms of income, we tend to earn about half on average of that of our white counterparts. In terms of wealth, we have less assets to pass down to our future generations. In terms of unemployment, we tend to find ourselves being unemployed at twice the rate of white Americans. And even in terms of inheritance, we don't have as much to offer to our future generations of children. So. Blacks more often live in communities of poverty. And because of this, criminological theory justifies the over-policing of black people by arguing that areas of poverty are more likely to have crime. Thus, the economic disadvantages that contribute to the over-policing of black communities and results in an increased rate of police encounters for us as blacks. These encounters lead to more disparities in terms of traffic stops, like those you just heard from our previous presenter, greater chances of automobiles being searched, more arrests, a greater likelihood of police use of force, police misconduct, and even more often we are killed by police. Thus, in terms of police brutality, blacks are victimized at much greater rates while often being unarmed, right? Often while in police custody, we are brutalized by police while being handcuffed and even face down in prone positions despite being compliant with officer commands. Such excessive force and or unnecessary lethal force often results from verbal exchanges or in the aftermath of nonviolent misdemeanor offenses like the failure to pay one's child support, as in the case of Walt Scott, the failure to appear for minor traffic violations, as in the case of Dante Wright, 
or for being suspected of passing a counterfeit $20 bill, as in the case of George Floyd. You know, it's no wonder we have strained relationships in our communities with police. Historically, police have, one might argue, have been the mechanism by which a system of racial and socioeconomic inequality has been perpetuated in America. Strangely, nowadays, we embark on the practice of community policing intended to improve relationships between police and citizens without even acknowledging the harm that has been done by a system of injustice. What we must consider is that without acknowledgement, reconciliation becomes much, much less likely. You might ask, well, how is it that this mechanism that I refer to as police has contributed to this racial and socioeconomic equality? Many of the points made by the previous researcher or, or professor are very accurate, so I won't uh, continue with as many stats. Nonetheless, when we consider policies that are often race neutral on their face, but applied in a very discriminatory manner, this is the m method by which we find ourselves victims of substantial disparities at the hands of our criminal justice system. Things like stop and frisk in New York State, which was recently uh, declared unconstitutional by the United States Supreme Court. Stop and frisk was based on the uh, the policy of reasonable suspicion, a much lower standard than probable cause, which gave police the authority to ride up on anybody they felt like was suspicious, even though there was no evidence of the individual committing a crime. While this policy was neutral on its face, it was applied primarily to blacks and other minority communities. Similarly, the war on drugs has been noted as a process by which we have ensured that blacks are disadvantaged. And the war on drugs has primarily been fought in black communities. Things like the crack cocaine disparity that led to disparities in sentencing between crack cocaine and powder cocaine, where roughly five grams of crack cocaine would get you a life sentence, whereas 500 grams of cocaine, powder cocaine, would be necessary for the same sentence. The reason this is important is because crack is a drug that is primarily pushed in poverty-stricken communities. Powder cocaine is a drug that is more often attributed to people of wealth. And so when we see this sort of substantial disparity, despite the fact that crack is an impure substance, often cut with other substances like baking powder, considering it's impure substance, it's strange that we criminalize that particular drug more heavily. Furthermore, through the practice of qualified immunity, in the aftermath of police violence and police misconduct, often our police officers are not held accountable to the same degree as the rest of us citizens. Often they are able to get their cases dismissed in court through summary judgment if that particular incident has not been one that has been adjudicated on similar circumstances in the past. And when I say similar circumstances, I mean almost identical. So in this regard, considering the atrocities that we just discussed, police in many ways constitute the gatekeepers to a system that unjustly and systematically subjects a disproportionate number of black Americans to injustice. This over-policing leads to even more legal disparities for black Americans as our previous presenter just stated. Due to lower socioeconomic status, blacks are less likely to be successful in court. 
we're less likely to be able to afford cash bail, less likely to be able to afford a private attorney. And to the extent that you can't post bail, research indicates there's much greater chance of you receiving a harsher sentence. To the extent that you must rely on the services of a public defender rather than a private attorney, becomes much more likely that an individual will receive uh, incarceration in the aftermath of their court case. Thus, this greater likelihood of incarceration contributes to the disadvantage that we as black Americans experience in court, thereby leading to a system of mass incarceration. Jeffrey Ryman entitled his book, The Rich Get Richer and the Poor Get Prison. Michelle Alexander entitled her book, New Jim Crow. Each of these describing the American penal system in similar yet graphic detail. Angela Davis, many decades ago, famously coined the phrase prison industrial complex to describe the marriage between prison and industry that characterizes contemporary corrections. What we need to be mindful of is that mass incarceration is reminiscent of slavery. Inmates can be forced to work for free. In fact, many states make inmate labor mandatory. The 13th Amendment, while it was supposed to abolish slavery, says that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except for a crime, except as punishment, excuse me, for a crime, will exist in the United States. The key phrase here is except as punishment for a crime. In fact, it is customary to refer to an inmate as a slave of the state. This criminal justice system can be, can and has been used to perpetuate the inequalities resulting from slavery, while also maintaining an underclass of people known as criminals, ex-convicts, and inmates. In short, the 13th Amendment only abolished slavery in terms of private ownership of another individual. Essentially, we still have slavery simply by another name. The government can own as many slaves as they would like. Is this not simply slavery by another name, you might ask, where minorities account for more than 65% of the prison population? Well, one in three blacks will be in jail or in prison at some point in their lives. But blacks account for 35% of the prison population, but only 13% of the general population. Well, we as blacks are more than three times more likely to be incarcerated than our white counterparts. Well, white Americans account for 62% of the population, but only 30, 34% of the prison population. Is this not slavery by another name? Every day, blacks are still living the struggle, still trying to catch up in a race where many other people seem to have a head start, in a race where other races or races often have been given better equipment, come from better neighborhoods that provide better training, in a race where other races where other races of people come from a lineage that has not been cut off from their history or their heritage or their legacy. In a race where our black Americans are delayed at the starting line, often tripped before the finish line, and tried to use mechanisms to make it impossible to finish the race, such that we never establish generational wealth, such that we more often come from broken homes and single parent families due to mass incarceration and poverty, because we always experience the hopelessness and the helplessness of a society that continues to blame us for our own oppression 
repression and resulting disadvantages. Thank you for allowing me to participate in this inquiry. Thank you so much, Professor Pitts, for that incredibly moving expert testimony. So we'll now turn to our next expert witness, which is Thomas Harvey. Dr. Thomas Harvey, you may begin. Great. Uh, thank you so much for the opportunity to testify before the California Reparations Task Force. Uh, this body has a historic opportunity to create a national model for reparations, and I am honored to play a, a small role in its deliberation. I'm currently the executive director of the Children's Defense Fund in the California office. Um, the Children's Defense Fund fights for the largest, most diverse generation in America, the 73 million children and youth under the age of 18, and the 30 million young adults under the age of 25, with particular attention to those living in poverty and black youth. We know that the legacy of enslavement drives child poverty, especially in California, where we have among the highest poverty levels in the nation. Black people have been systematically deprived of housing, quality of health care, ample nutritious food, equitable education, safe neighborhoods, and access to resources and opportunities. I'm here today to testify about the expansive harm of enslavement, which includes the broad range of harmful legal regimes that grow out of it, including the black codes, convict leasing, Jim Crow laws, the drug war, and the overall disproportionate treatment of black people in the criminal legal system. My testimony today largely draws from my experience as the executive director of Arch City Defenders from 2009 to 2017. Arch City Defenders is a holistic legal advocacy organization combating the criminalization of poverty and state violence, especially among black people and poor people in the St. Louis region. We provided direct legal representation in civil and criminal cases of people experiencing homelessness and helped them obtain the social services critical to obtaining and maintaining housing. Our clients face mostly low-level municipal charges, ranging from things like expired license plates to manner of walking, all of which were designed to police race and poverty in the series of small towns in the region. The most famous of these apartheid-like legal regimes is, of course, Ferguson, Missouri, which operated in relative obscurity until the murder of Mike Brown on August 9, 2014, and the subsequent Ferguson uprising. Uprising. Enslavement's past and present merged in at least two important ways during the uprising. The murder of Mike Brown by a white Ferguson cop echoed the dehumanization of black people inherent to enslavement. And St. Louis's racist predatory legal regime reflected the long history of white supremacy enforced through a modern day manifestation of debt peonage, Jim Crow, and black coat. Let's start with the current picture that, I, that Dr. Barco has, has given, but I'm going to reiterate some of it here, of the U.S. mass system of human caging. The United States has 1,566 state prisons, 102 federal prisons, 2,850 jails, 1,510 child caging facilities, 186 immigration caging centers, and 82 Indian country jails. We currently incarcerate 1.9 million people, 615,000 of whom are locked in a cage right now because of poverty and race who have not been convicted of a crime. Because jail contributes so profoundly to the perpetuation of poverty, the cost 
associated with this level of jailing are estimated to be as high as $140 billion per year. You add in probation and parole, the total number of human beings under carceral control in the United States is nearly 6 million. We are far and away the world's leader in human caging, imprisoning our citizens significantly more than countries like China, Russia, and Iran. One in three black men will be incarcerated during their lifetime. Black Americans are incarcerated in state prisons at rates nearly five times that of white Americans. One in 81 black adults is serving prison time right now. In California, the disparity between imprisonment of black people and white people is nine to one. Overall, the United States incarcerates black men at a rate six times that of South Africa at the height of apartheid. Ferguson itself is emblematic of the outgrowth of enslavement. Although it was initially described as a microcosm of the modern inequality and injustice in the United States. While the population of the city of Ferguson was 67% black, 85% of all vehicle stops, 93% of all arrests, 88% of all use of force cases, and 92% of all warrants issues involved black people. In St. Louis County, where Ferguson was located, Ferguson was simply one of dozens of virtually identical racist, predatory, local criminalized legal systems all of which routinely and disproportionately stopped, charged, fined, arrested, and caged poor and black people. St. Louis's Kafkaesque debtors prison network resulted in an astonishing but banal reality on the day Mike Brown was murdered. There were 700,000 active warrants for arrest in the St. Louis region, which only has 1.2 million people. Let that sink in for a moment, that's roughly one out of every two people in St. Louis had a warrant for their arrest. In Ferguson alone, there were 32,000 active arrest warrants in a city of 21,000 people. Secondly, Mike Brown's killing is situated within a long history of cops and white people killing unarmed black people. These killings follow predictable patterns, the most damning of which is the inevitable dehumanization of the victim. Depicting black people as inhuman was a central premise justifying enslavement and the white supremacist fear-mongering that followed Reconstruction. The fear of free black people gaining economic and political power quickly translated into the depictions we've seen ever since. Black men were depicted as brutes, stock figure of white supremacist rhetoric in the lynching era. They were described as beasts that could withstand the worst kinds of punishment. You remember the images from headlines stories of super predators, wilding, fear-mongering concerns about Willie Horton. But these stories are never so prominent as when cops brutalize black people. Like Freddie Gray and Trayvon Martin, Rodney King was described as someone to fear, a monster, a Tasmanian devil, a man with, quote, Hulk-like strength. When Darren Wilson called Mike Brown a demon, he drew on this history. He called Mike Brown a person with superhuman strength, who somehow grew stronger as Wilson tried to kill him. Wilson, like so many murderers of black people, justified his actions by directly spreading on the dehumanizing stereotypes emerging from enslavement. When people took to the streets after Mike Brown's murder during the longest sustained protests in U.S. history, they weren't simply protesting police violence against unarmed black people. They were protesting a system, 91 cities with 81 courts, and 67 police departments 
policing black life and generating a collective $50 million from their oppression. They protested being locked in a cage because they were too poor to make a payment. They didn't have access to medication. Black women with children protested being stolen from their children because they didn't have $350 to buy their freedom. Tens of thousands of people were jailed because of their race and poverty, all while being asked to believe that this was actually about public safety instead of race and social control. These practices in Ferguson and throughout the country represent the largely uninterrupted collaboration between cops, courts, and local governments, not only to oppress black people and poor people, but also to profit from that collaboration, starting with legalized slavery that built the United States of America, continuing on to the black codes, followed by the debt peonage that replaced it, and the further criminalization of black life and poverty. Whether it is the creation and selective enforcement of trespassing, vagrancy, panhandling laws, or the disparities in traffic stops and mandatory sentencing for drug cases, a legal system has reflected the most pernicious strains of American racism. And this system exists throughout the country. According to the Children's Defense Fund's 2021 report on the state of children in the U.S., a disproportionate number of black children are incarcerated in the juvenile justice and or adult criminal legal systems, placing them at risk of physical and psychological harm. 530,000 children were arrested in the U.S., and a child or teen was arrested every 59 seconds. Black children were 2.4 times more likely to be arrested than white children. Black youth represented less than 15% of the total youth population, but 52% of youth incarcerated in adult criminal facilities. Black youth are nine times more likely than white youth to receive an adult prison sentence. In California, the story is similar. According to CDF's 2018 report, Unhidden Figures, black youth are disproportionately enrolled in LA County schools that serve the students who are in the juvenile halls and probation camps. Although black students are less likely to misbehave at school when compared to white students, they are two times as likely to receive school-based discipline. As a result of these systems, black youth are significantly more likely to be homeless, be jailed in the future, and to never achieve employment. Studies of traffic stops in California show a disturbingly similar pattern to those in Ferguson. While only 5% of white people who are searched during traffic stops, 24% of black drivers and their passengers are searched, even though police are more likely to find drugs, weapons, or other contraband on white people than they are on anyone else. Driving home these connections in California, student Susan Burton's A New Way of Life published a study called Not Just a Ferguson Problem, How Traffic Courts Drive Inequality in California. This comprehensive report showed that 4 million people in California had their licenses suspended for similar reasons as we saw in Ferguson. The prosecution of these suspensions generated $10 billion in fines. As in Ferguson, these policies disproportionately impacted people of color, beginning with who gets pulled over in the first place. Data from San Diego and Sacramento showed that black people were two to four times more likely to be pulled over for a traffic stop than white people. In San Francisco, over 70% of people seeking legal assistance for driver's license suspensions were African-American, although African-Americans make up only 6% of the city as a whole. One minute. Data around police killings showed the same patterns. According to the Washington Post, 
Police shot and killed at least 1,055 people nationwide last year. That's more than the 1,021 shootings in 2020 and 999 in 2019. Black people who account for more than who account for 13% of the population accounted for 27% of those fatally shot and killed by police in 2021. In LA County alone, cops have killed 959 people since 2001, 233 of whom were black, 233 of whom were black. Although black people make up less than 10% of LA County's population, they represent a 24% of law enforcement killings. Conversely, white people who make up more than a quarter of the population are killed in 19% of the incidents. In summary, the legacy of enslavement is visible every day in our criminal legal system, throughout the country, and in California. The harms of enslavement are not limited to the, ex to the extraction of life and labor in the pre-Civil War period, but rather persist in ways that continue to today. These ongoing harms bleed over into other areas, including housing, employment, child welfare systems, houselessness, education, and the accumulation of intergenerational wealth. The remedy for such harms have to be comprehensive. When we were litigating against St. Louis's criminal legal system, we sought multiple victories, direct cash payments to people who survived the harm, massive systems change to end that harm in the future, and the creation of systems that would continue to offset these historical harms. Given the pervasive, ongoing nature of these harms, the people we represented who have been experienced inter intergenerational harm by these systems knew that none of these incomes individually provided sufficient reparations. I hope the task force will consider this as it determines a slate of remedies to address these historic wrongs in California. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Harvey, for your incredible expert testimony. We will now turn to Kika Keith. Kika Keith, you may begin your testimony when you're ready. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon, esteemed task force. My name is Kika Keith. <laughs> and I'm appreciative of this opportunity to contribute to the Department of Justice's work on reparations. There are distinct parallels between the institution of slavery that was constitutionally and statutorily sanctioned by the United States and the history of the war on drugs that is marred by racism and was enforced with racist motivations. I stand here before you today as a drug war survivor. Prior to 2017, when I learned about the legalization of recreational cannabis in Los Angeles, drug war survivor wasn't even a term that I would have used to describe myself. I was a proud owner of a beverage manufacturing company with the first to market drink, Gorilla Life and Whole Foods, Bristol Farms and Gelson, a single mother of three beautiful daughters from South Central LA, who was taught by my parents to fight for justice and to be a voice to the voiceless. And though I never heard or used the term drug war survivor, I knew I was raised my whole life in impoverished neighborhoods. South, South Central Los Angeles was indicative of black communities across this country that were destroyed by the systematic declaration of war from the infiltration of drugs on the streets of our inner cities. Across the U.S., black men on average were eight times more likely to be arrested and convicted for cannabis than white men. The collateral damage is reprehensible. The fabric of the black family was broken into the prison system, the foster care system, and the graveyard. We must consider that it wasn't just a question of arresting criminals. It was a question of criminalizing a whole community and inflicting upon the mental health issues that led to psychological warfare on the whole African-American community, the black family. 
And when we speak of reparations, we must consider the legacy of the war against our people that had been waged from the days that we were kidnapped and brought to these shores. Our very beginning speaks to traumatic stress passed down from generations of protracted war that has been visited upon us not only by civil society, but by government policy as well. Harry J. Amslinger, the father of the war on drugs, was a notorious racist who didn't keep his overtly racist comments and propaganda behind closed doors. And similar racist motives drove the expansion of the war on drugs during the presidency of Richard Nixon, with the signing of the Controlled Substance Act into law, which remains intact today. John Ehrlichman, Nixon's aide on domestic affairs, gave us great insight on the government's intentional, immoral, and inhumane acts against black people, as he revealed in an interview following the time at the White House that he stated. The Nixon campaign in 1968, the Nixon White House that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the Vietnam War or black people, but by getting public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. He went on to say, we could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break their meetings, vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Marijuana criminalization is a textbook case for how structural racism and white supremacy are deeply embedded across laws and policies in the United States. If the economy was built off of and benefited from enslavement, these infamous drug laws have continued the long American history of appealing to white people by promising to punish black people. Today, mass incarceration has led to nearly 3 million children to live in homes where one or more parent is incarcerated. And so when I say drug war survivor, the numbers make it real. One in nine black children are in foster care, compared to one in 57 white children. Throughout the 1980s and into the 2000s, ad campaigns like the Isthmus, This Is Your Brain on Drug commercials flooded airways across classrooms all across America. Black people in particular have borne the brunt of arrest and incarceration, despite similar and even some reports greater rates of use by white people. And while anti-messaging, anti-marijuana messaging pushed cannabis as a gateway drug, it was more accurately a gateway to the carceral system. Case in point, in Los Angeles, black people represent 8% of the population and yet an astonishing 40% of the arrests. In Oakland, African Americans consisted of 70% of the arrests but only made up 30% of the population. And in our state capital, African Americans consisted 43% of the arrests while making up only 15% of Sacramento's population. In just a few years, cannabis has transformed from an illicit product to the fifth most valuable crop in the United States, a multi-million dollar industry. This economic success, however, is not benefiting the black community targeted by the war on drugs. The capital-intensive capital market, cannabis market, is dominated by white-owned businesses, a direct consequence of the wealth disparities that black communities experience because of cannabis criminalization. A growing recondition of this hypocrisy is developing, leading state legislators and municipal governments to develop cannabis equity programs. And these programs seek to remediate harms of past criminalization through expungement, through uh, creating cannabis equity licenses for communities harmed by prohibition. But unfortunately, these efforts often fall short of achieving their goals, largely because these programs don't specifically list black communities as the most impacted by the war on drugs. Despite the overwhelming evidence that the war on drugs was created and enforced to oppress black community equity programs, almost always shy away from using race-conscious measures 
or minority business designations. Ironically, this timidness is traced back to the 14th Amendment, a post-Civil War amendment passed to stop states from denying the rights granted to recently freed slaves. The Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment mandates that government treat similarly situated persons equally under the law. And in interpreting the 14th Amendment, the Supreme Court of the United States takes a colorblind approach to race, taking this position that all race-conscious classifications are inherently suspect when the objective is helping minority populations experiencing racial discrimination. And I've witnessed this firsthand, the damning effects of this colorblind approach in Los Angeles. As the city established a social equity program to repair the grave injustice of the people most harmed by the war on drugs, but instead was played by delays, scandal, bureaucratic blunders, costing intended yeah, yeah. beneficiaries, a handful of black people, hundreds of thousands of dollars in losses. Less than 20% of the 200 retail licenses on track to receive a license through the program are black owned. Once again, our black community most disproportionately targeted by marijuana arrests is again facing discrimination. In 2017, when I learned about the LA's program and how to create a pathway, I knew that it was for families like mine who was traumatized by my stepfather who served seven years in jail for selling a dime bag of weed, $10 worth of weed. We were sold a dream, hope from our local state and politicians like uh, Council President Herb Wesson, who positioned the future of legal cannabis as a chance to close the wealth gap between black and white families, to atone for the damage of the war on drugs, and maybe provide some small recompense for the entire sordid history of racism in the United States. And as a black woman, this resonated to my core as I understood the industrial history of this country that would not allow black people to have a significant ownership opportunities in the cotton industry, the tobacco industry, automobile and alcohol industry, to name a few. By 2018, we quickly realized that social equity program was designed to fail. No budget, no technical assistance, no education, no access to capital. The requirement to have a property to apply my location on Crenshaw Boulevard was $12,000 a month. Once again, black people were set up for predatory investments with sharecropper agreements. Once again, it's obvious that even with legislation in place for reparative justice, the true intent of the social equity program was being dismantled in front of our very eyes. After three years of grassroots educating and lobbying, we formed the Social Equity Owners and Workers Association to organize our people, unionize our efforts, and cooperatively raise money for a legal fund. We filed a lawsuit against the city of L.A. and later settled for 100 additional social equity retail licenses. 1,340 days later, I opened the first black woman-owned dispensary in Los Angeles, Gorilla Rx Wellness Co., or as we call it, the house that the people built. And while states repeal mandatory sentences, they continue to profit off the forced labor of incarcerated people. State lawmakers must do the necessary work of determining what reparations are owed to black community for the damage it has inflicted. True repair to justice will mean that not only cash payments to be made for cash economic theft from black communities, but also the acknowledgement and the intentional dismantling of systems that perpetuate discrimination today. And as the task force studies the ongoing effects of, institution, of the institution of slavery and its legacy of persistent systemic structures of discrimination on living African Americans, I assert that marijuana legalization offers an opportunity for a blueprint for how to begin rooting out the white supremacy in in U.S. laws. This begins with challenging the 14th Amendment to use race-conscious classifications and defining social equity program beneficiaries of the trauma and injustice bestowed on black African Americans and to, to develop 
models like the Chicago suburb of Evanston that has become the first U.S. city to use tax money from the sale of recreational marijuana to make reparations available to its black residents for past discrimination and the lingering effects of slavery. Thanks again for this opportunity to testify, and I would like to give special thanks to Senator Bradford and Assemblymember Dylan Sawyer, who have been champions of cannabis equity for black people in the state of California. Blessings. Thank you so much, Kika Keith, for your excellent expert testimony. So we'll now turn to Cerise Castle. Cerise Castle, you may begin when you're ready. Good afternoon, and thank you to the panel for having me. I stand before you as a descendant of Isaac Wingfield, who was bought and sold on the Wingfield Plantation, and of General T William Tecumseh Sherman, who issued Special Field Order Number 15 for 40 oh, acres wow. and a mule, the first attempted act of reparation. I am joining you on unceded on the land and want to acknowledge the land. The aim of my presentation is to discuss with you the culture inside of LASD, which has allowed gangs to come to be and to continue to allow them to grow and multiply. Deputy gangs are a symptom of a broken system. We are discussing things under the lens of deputy gangs, but these issues exist outside of the deputy gang structure too. Next slide, please. Let's start off by defining what a deputy gang is. These are not cliques or subgroups. The California Penal Code describes a gang as, next slide, any organization or group that has three or more people that have a common name or identifying sign or symbol, next slide, as, as one, is, one of its primary activities, the commission of one of a long list of California criminal offenses, and finally, next slide, a group whose members have engaged in the pattern of criminal gang activity, either alone or together. Crimes in the case of deputy gangs include murder, rape, kidnapping, money laundering, falsifying police reports. Next slide, please. The movie Mean Girls is a classic example of a click. It tells the story of a group of high school girls who bully each other and other students. Next slide. These deputy gangs are not cliques. They are criminal. They engage in illegal activity against community members. They have the same tattoos and they use hand signs. Next slide. My main findings are there are at least 18 gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. The first gang was discovered after the 1970 Chicano moratorium called the Little Devil. Law enforcement gangs are not unique to the Los Angeles area, but we are home to the first known ones. Deputy gangs are responsible for the deaths of at least 19 civilians, all of whom were men of color, or were in the midst of a mental health crisis. Next slide. LA County also keeps a list of litigation related to deputy gangs. I created a database at Knock LA of deputies alleged to be associates and tattooed members of the gang. I was inspired to create this by systems like Cal Gang, which is widely used by law enforcement here in Los Angeles County. The bar to get into Cal Gang is incredibly low. It classifies gang members based on family members, where someone may live, or who they're friends with. If you are arrested, it comes with enhancements and more jail time. The deputy gang database acknowledges deputies and upper-level personnel who were present or oversaw illegal activities as associates, and those who have been identified in court cases through self-admissions and tattoos are categorized as members. Tattoos are given at so-called 998 parties, named after the police code for officer-involved shootings. It's alleged that in order to enter some of the gangs, a deputy like, ain't no meaning an asshole in the next five years, you're going to be like, a party's going to be like, really? You may, okay. Uh, 
going to kill millions of people, but somehow everyone that I owe money will. He was at the old one. You know what I mean? I held off all because I was like, he's been sick anyway. Let's get sick. Thank you. I was in Georgia. I was in Atlanta visiting my family for Thanksgiving. It was November of 2020, right? And it was four of us in the car. My aunt driving, my mom sitting passenger, me sitting behind my aunt, my girlfriend sitting next to me. And we get pulled over. But we get pulled over from, like, the light. Like it, like it flashes green, and then we just hear whoop whoop. I'm like, that's not even time enough. Can't do anything illegal. Pull over, and my aunt rolls down the window. Cop walks up to the to the window, and my aunt already has her lights up. You know, black movie, stay ready. <laughs> she hands the cop her license, and she's like, I'm sorry, like was I speeding or something? I don't know how you speed from green, but you know, like. By speeding something, and he, he bent down, and he looked at us, and he said, you have too many people in the car. So he said, there's too many people in the car. And he walked back, and I'm not going to lie, I Googled it. I was just like, baby. <laughs> you know, it's 2020, we had COVID, I don't know, you know, we can fit by, we're technically riding life. Like, there's too many people, and while he's gone, my mind is just racing. It's just thinking about all the ways that this could go wrong. You know, and I was so nervous, genuinely afraid, not just for myself, but for the women around me. And he finally walks back up to the window. And he's been gone a long time, by the way. And he leans into the window. He hands my aunt back her license. And he says, on behalf of Newton County, we'd like to present you and your family with this butter ball turkey. <laughs> and in my head, I'm like, why are you doing like that? What is wrong with you? I thought we were all going to jail. Everybody knows the longer the time is gone, the more jails you're going to. <laughs> what took you so long? Did you forget where the turkey were? I'm not gonna lie, I actually think that what happened was he went he had the off lights and he wouldn't grab straight and then the lights would stand between the seats and he was like, it's always something. <laughs> so then he passes the turkey to my aunt. She passes the turkey to me. I'm just sitting there with it, looking at it, and in my head, I'm like, there better not be any crack in this. <laughs> and then we drive off, and whew, I'm not going to lie, police have messed with me before, but like, this is the worst thing that a cop has ever done to me. Because in a year where all of my friends are out protesting, and we're sitting around in Brooklyn around the table telling stories about getting their ass beat at protests like civil rights leaders. I got to be the one to be like, yeah, and sometimes they need to talk and you don't even walk. <laughs> it's a game for a thing to your house will be for all the time. That's fair. 
I've, uh, I've been having a really weird time because it's at the end of last year that I realized I'm a little bit older right now than my parents were when they had me. And that feels crazy. Right? Because in a year where all of my friends are out protesting, 